Yes. Yep. Well, you know, I, I want to welcome uh, Rod. Thank him for taking time out of his busy, busy schedule to be with us this afternoon on the uh, cricket show. I'm it's sorry good. that we were unable to get the uh, live feature that we wanted for on the day of the broadcast, but such is uh, the life these days with technicalities dealing with digital uh, you know, information and digital equipment. So we have to resort to doing this and we'll record this for our show on Sunday. Uh, Rod, we are aware that uh, you are now uh, enjoying the retired life. That is true. Also aware that, uh, you know, you carry amongst your title uh, an academic and one who has played a significant role in cricket as far as the Dutch cricket board is concerned, because you actually spent some time as a vice chair. So That's true. I've, yes. I've read your pieces and I was very curious to know how is it someone living all the way out there in Australia knows so much about cricket in the Netherlands. Now I know having seen your, uh, your profile. So welcome. Yeah. And I have, I have lots of contacts in the Netherlands, even though I've been here for two and a half years. Yeah. Because Australia's borders have been closed because of the pandemic. You're right. Okay. So, Liam, can you introduce yourself to um, to yourself to um, Rod? Yes, uh, Rod. My name is Satin Patel. I'm a more of uh, on the coaching side, uh, part of the USA Cricket Development, and also been training so many coaches in this country. Also, Cricket Hall of Famer and uh, one of the panelists on this radio show for last many years. And uh, probably all we talk is all about cricket. Uh -huh. What else is there? Well, nothing much. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, any sign of Leon being able to come in and say hello? Leon is there. I can see him. The picture is there. But we are not able to hear him. Or... I think maybe we will just proceed until you're able to pull Leon in and get some information from him. Um, Rod, I was hoping that perhaps you could give us a brief, if you like, resume, not resume, but a brief history or description of your article, ICC and Global Growth. I have to inform you that I do have a copy of it in front of me. But I also am aware that uh, maybe, you know, since you're in the hot seat, we'd love to hear your thoughts coming directly out of your mouth so that we can then, uh, you know, pick the pieces up and run with it. Well, yeah, thank, uh, thanks, Dennis. Uh, not for the first time, back in November, I wrote a piece in a white heat uh, about uh, an ICC document. Um, and the timing of that document could scarcely have been unhappier. Uh, what they did was they launched their new plan for global growth, as they called it. It was a two-page A4 glossy, uh, full of slogans and management speak, um, but uh, no, no, very few figures. 
and the only figures that it contained were about mm -hmm. fan engagement. Uh, no figures about numbers playing. They were talking about an increase in the numbers playing. They were talking about uh, developing cricket in the associate countries, but there were very few concrete uh, details about how they were going to do that. Uh, and in many ways, it was a much less developed plan than the two or three or four plans for global growth that we had seen over the over the past two decades. Furthermore, um, it committed to meaningful uh, competitive cricket for the associate countries at uh, exactly the moment, well, four days after they had announced that, that they were abandoning the uh, Super League, the 13-team Super League, which gave one associate country at any rate in the current cycle, happened to be the Netherlands, um, well, it didn't happen to be the Netherlands, the Netherlands qualified to take part, and it was huge for them. Uh, and although it's been severely disrupted by the pandemic, as so much has been, um, they announced, the ICC announced that they were going to uh, abandon that experiment before it had been completed, before it had really been given a chance, uh, and that they were going to revert to basing qualification for global tournaments on rankings. The ranking system, the ICC ranking system is quite frankly a disaster. I think everybody accepts that it's a disaster. We are seeing consequences of that literally as we speak in the tournament in Oman, where the Philippines happened to finish top of the rankings or the, the highest on the rankings for that tournament um, based on a very, very uh, inadequate um, series of matches in terms of comp com competitive cricket. Uh, and they got the gig ahead of, say, Vanuatu, who, who are on paper and on the field, which is where it matters, um, clearly a much stronger side. So <clears throat> the fact that they that they said, okay, we're going to go back to bilaterals because bilaterals are, and rankings are what the big countries want, and basically the um, uh, the smaller countries can go and get stuff, uh, was so uh, incongruous, so. Uh, such a, sh a sharp contrast with all the fine-sounding words that the ICC produced in these two glossy pages um, that I simply pointed out in 900 words um, where the discrepancies were, that it's great that they want to develop women's cricket, that they want to, uh, uh, that they say they want to, increase the number of teams taking part in the major global tournaments, and they are indeed taking steps in that direction. But it's been so slow, it's so unplanned, the development has been so incoherent, and there have been so many backward steps over the past 20 years. Um, and I can talk a bit more about that later on. Um, that um, I, I, I have to say, I just, I, I saw red. Um, and that article was the result. Okay, fine. Thank you. Um, Jatin, any sign of uh, Leon being able to come to the front? Jatin? No, not yet. Not, not yet. Okay. Well, we, we'll continue. Um, 
if you don't mind, um, uh, Rod, what I'll do is I'll just ask a, a few questions based on, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of hopscotch across your article as opposed to, um, you know, going chronologically. And yep, sure. in, I, I've lost Rod from my, okay, thank you. Now, you mentioned expanding the fan base. Can yep. we not can we not accept that investment in growth markets will translate into incremental growth in the fan base? And if the fan base is growing, is that not an indicator of the growth of the game worldwide? I don't think so. Um, I think there is a huge um, existing fan base and a potential fan base. Um, for example, in the subcontinental diaspora, wherever, wherever cricket lovers from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh may be, Nepal, they will follow cricket. Um, and it, that, that, is a, that is a given. And there are many, many countries around the world where cricket would um, not exist, probably, were it not for that diaspora. But there is a huge difference between a fan base, which is essentially passive, which watches, which engages with, which supports online, for example, if the streaming is good enough, the streaming is often not good enough, um, particularly where the associates are concerned. So I don't have a quarrel with developing the fan base as such. My problem comes when you substitute developing the fan base for developing cricket. What's important is not so much that we have lots of people watching streamed cricket on their computers and engaging via social media. What's important is that we have more and more players across the 100 plus members of the of the ICC and countries which are not yet members of the ICC, which are often doing really good developmental work. Um, what's important is that those countries see more and more players, boys and girls, men and women. And that's where the focus should be. I think it's much more important that the focus should be on finding practical ways to develop cricket in countries across every continent. Um, yes, people from the diasporas, expats, but also people from what we might call the indigenous population. If cricket is going to become stronger in, choose a random country, the Czech Republic, um, or Costa Rica, uh, it is vitally important that the players from, that the expats who currently run cricket and enjoy playing cricket in those countries are able to reach out and get Czechs, Costa Ricans playing cricket. The long-term future of cricket involves grassroots involvement of the native population in every country. 
and they need help with that. That's not something which happens automatically. Where cricket is a tiny minority sport, the sources of funding locally are necessarily very restrictive. Um, when the when the ICC retreated from its development strategy, the strategy which had been in place from around 2000 to around 2010, uh, 2012, maybe even 2015, when they pulled the plug on that, they said, oh, we can't go on funding cricket in these minority countries. You've got to find your own sponsorship. You've got to find your own local support. But they, they, they offered no serious help in how you might do that. And even a country which has a long cricketing history, like the Netherlands, where cricket goes back to the 19th century, when, where there's been a national team and a national competition since 1891, um, the the I know because I've been in, I've been involved in it. The 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 finding of sponsorship is a huge problem, and it's only when you get uh, serious exposure where you get uh, full member test sides coming to play ODIs, uh, where you get um, the possibility of maybe even getting onto television on for local free-to-air television. It's only when that starts to happen, when you've got tournament commitments at home and abroad, which you can sell to a sponsor, it's only when that kind of happens, when that starts to become possible, that you have any realistic prospect of getting the kind of local funding you need in order to put down realistic roots in the local community. And to take a concrete example, Ryan Campbell, the Dutch national coach, tweeted this morning in response to the fact that the uh, the live streaming from the T20 qualifier in Oman, which, is, which started yesterday, the live streaming has been a disaster. I don't know whether you've seen it, you've seen any of it, but but games where you simply couldn't watch the game, they advertised they were going to show it, and then the feed didn't work, and Ryan Campbell rightly says, tough if you've sold a sponsor the fact that this is going to be live streamed, and then it isn't. So it's all very well to have it's all very well to have fine words about digital engagement and 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 building the fan base, but if you can't deliver on the most simple of those commitments on a practical basis, and if you have no serious strategy for getting cricket out into the local communities, then then it doesn't matter what fine words you have and what glossy paper you print them on. Thank you. Um, Jaitin, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but is there any sign of uh, Leon being visible and overall? Leon is visible, but he is not able to communicate. That's what I can okay. see. Looks like he's having microphone issues, Rod. Yeah, as always. How we know that? All right, well, let's, <laughs> let's proceed. Now, one of the statements you made in the article, Rod, was that money in the coffers of powerful members. Now, in recent years, there has been an exponential growth in individual or corporate-owned cricket franchises. 
such as the various T20 franchises. Do you consider these franchises to be channeling money into the coffers of powerful members? Are these franchises no different to a McDonald's or Burger King investment business? What is your thought? Yeah, um, there are several, I think there are several issues wrapped up in that question. I mean, my, 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 what I was thinking about when I wrote that sentence was the fact that over the last 10 years, we have seen a severe reduction in the amount of money from ICC sources, which goes to the associate members. The associate members' share of, of the budget was slashed when what I call it, what a lot of people call the Gang of Three, India, Australia, and England, staged what was essentially a, a coup uh, to take over the um, to take over the the, um, the running of the ICC, and they slashed the money that was going to go to the associates. Uh, there was some restoration when the the other full members fought back. And there was an there was an adjustment. There was a compromise deal. Um, there was some adjustment, but it's still way below the levels of funding that were available 12, 15 years ago. And significantly, when Ireland and Afghanistan were elevated to full membership, I don't want to put that in inverted commas, but to in elevated to full membership. Um, the funding, the additional funding which they got as full members was actually taken out of the associates area of the budget. I mean, you really couldn't make that up. But rather than the um, the, the countries with the, the lion's share of the funding, the existing full members, rather than them taking a haircut in order to fund Ireland and Afghanistan, they put the burden on the associates. And nothing could more clearly um, state, I think, or indicate the priorities in the ICC board. The amount of money available through um, the, um, the, the media deals and the other commercial deals, which ICC increasingly makes, um, has the amount of money available has risen exponentially over the past 20 years. And most of it goes to the full members, and within that, the lion's share is taken by India and then, and then to the rest of the, of the full members who already have very considerable income from their own local deals. The BCCI, to take the, the clearest case, the BCCI um, not only gets a large grant from the ICC, but for domestic bilateral cricket and for, sorry, for, for international bilateral cricket played in India, and for domestic cricket in India. They have separate media deals, as Australia does, as, as all the full members do, with their own local media outlets. 
So they have a basic budget which comes from their own resources. Plus on top of that, a huge grant from the ICC. And the smaller associates have to get by with, with a few thousand dollars a year. Um, never, never, to use another biblical quote, never was it truer that to those that have shall be given. <laughs> and yes. Yes. Um, and it, it, it's outrageous. Oh, you know, you, you mentioned the gang of three, the BCCI, yep. ECB, and Cricket Australia. Um, yep. You describe them as greedy. How and why did you arrive at this conclusion? By using my eyes, but basically, um, and listening. Um, everything, everything that had happened, in international cricket over the past 20 years has been dominated by cricket administrators, not only in those three countries, but very significantly in those three countries, seeking to maximize the profitability of cricket above all else. Um, how many examples do you need? India threatening to pull out of a out of a tour of South Africa in order to get their own way over a specific incident. Um, the ECB launching the hundred as this revolutionary new uh, competition without without with for format without regard to the consequences. I believe without regard to the consequences for other formats, including T20. Uh, um, and indeed, and indeed, the domestic one-day competition, um, simply because they thought they could get more money that way. And if you look at the development policies uh, of such countries, if you look at the the BCCI's attitude towards the creation of a women's IPL, um, which brings us back to the good question of franchises, of which I only answered part, I think. Um, the 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 commercialization of cricket, particularly in those three countries, but not only in those three countries, it has advantages, obviously, in terms of making more money available. But then the question is, what do you spend that money on? And I, I think then it's a, it's perhaps a, a subtler question, a more complex question. And there are other people who know more about this in relation to the specific countries. Gideon Hay, for example. Um, who writes um, constantly and very, very effectively about Australian cricket politics. Um, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a genuine question whether those three countries and indeed the fan base in those three countries are getting value for money from the vast resources, comparatively vast resources, which those countries are able to bring in. Um, one of my one of my bugbears is the talk about markets. If you go back fifteen years, IS Bindra's recommendation to the ICC was that the ICC should focus on the United States and China because those were the two biggest potential oh. markets for cricket. Mm -hmm. Now, 
whether whether China ever was a serious market for cricket is a question we could debate. Um, and I don't believe it was. I think I think the United States is. And you guys will know much more about the ins and outs of this than I do. But if you look at the the history of uh, cricket governance and organisation in the in the United States over the past twenty or thirty years, it's fairly clear that it has been, shall we say, a checkered history, um, and attempts to set things on the rails by, among others, the ICC, who at one point suspended the existing organisation and step in and try to create a new one. Um, I think progress is clearly being made, even from the outside. It looks as if progress is being made. But it's not unqualified progress. There are still problems. And uh, that is, in a way, in conflict with the perception that there is a huge market. Yes, there is a huge market. I was talking to you, Dennis, the other day about a novel by uh, Joseph O'Neill called Neverland, which is about league cricket in New York. Um, it's about a lot of other things, but it's also about league cricket in New York in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, but um, the, there is huge potential in the United States. But the question is how you, how you actualize that, how you realize that. And how you ensure that the money that you do have, which is not enough, uh, is spent in ways which really does create more cricketers on the field. Yes, thank you. That's, that's the most important thing. Uh, now, let me continue in this direction because you said ICC is an unfit governing body for cricket. Why do you consider... ICC and unfit governing body. If you had the opportunity, what would you replace the ICC with? Ha. Um, it's not just me saying that. Look back to Lord Wolfe's review. Lord Wolfe was commissioned by the ICC to produce a report, to do a review and to produce a report on the current functioning of the ICC. That was in the aftermath of the extraordinary decision by the ICC, ICC board in the wake of the 2007 World Cup, not only to reduce the 50-over World Cup to 10 teams, but to restrict it to the, ten full, the then 10 full members. Um, and that decision created such a storm that they were forced to walk it back when they did walk it back and keep a 10-team World Cup but open up at least a, a notional qualification process for it, they punished the associates who had objected by reducing the number of teams in the T20 World Cup, uh, which is a fair indication of the way the ICC executive board is prepared to operate. Um, in the wake of all of that, it was decided that even the ICC board was forced to accept that they needed a review. So Lord Wolfe, who was a prominent retired British judge, was brought in to conduct the review. And he produced a report which is devastating in its critique of the financial arrangements of the ICC, the political arrangements of the ICC, and their governance in general. 
And within a week, the BCCI said, this document takes us nowhere and binned it. But literally, Lord Wolf said, the ICC is not fit for purpose. And although there have been a few changes um, over the, what, 10 years nearly now, since Lord Wolf's report was, was handed in, um, I don't believe that judgment is any less true now than it was 10 years ago. I think it's important. There are some very good people working in the ICC. And I, I sometimes think about, I often think about the ICC as being like a national government. Maybe any, any global governing sports body is. Because you've got, on the one hand, you've got the executive board and the people behind the exec, executive board who are, if you like, like the politicians, um, the parliament or whatever. But then you have the civil service, the public service, who are the people who are involved in uh, umpire management and tournament organization and financial control and every aspect of the directly cricketing aspects, but also the, um, the, the, the support aspects of the entire operation. Um, and many of them do a good job. Not all of them, I think, but, but many of them do a, do a good job. But they have to do that job within the remit that they are given, within the, the strategic um, objectives which are set for them by the executive board and by the CEO who is directly responsible to the executive board. And we've seen how the executive board of the ICDC deals with its uh, CEO. You only have to read Malcolm Speed's book about his time running the ICC. Dennis Richardson has never has never really come out about what, what his experience was. But they have gone through a lot of CEOs and few of them have left happy, I think. Uh, so there are fundamental weaknesses in a structure where an executive board which tends to consult only the interests of its own constituency. And as far as I can see, no one else who come to the table asking not what's good for cricket, but what's good for my organization. Um, and necessarily it's the big guns. It is still the BCCI, the Cricket Australia and the ECB who have the most weight um, and who are able to throw that weight around and do so on a regular basis. What would I, what would I replace it with? Yes. How would I change? How would I change it? Yeah, we can change um, it. Make it better. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge question, isn't it? Um, wiser heads than mine have 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 looked at the structure. Um, somehow, it has to be made more representative. It has to be made more independent of the the big uh, national national boards, um, the national boards will never agree to that. Um, so, so 
you know, in, in wild moments, you think, well, the associates are getting so little out of the ICC. Um, what is the point? Why do they stay? Well, they stay because they do get some support. Even the little ones get a small amount of funding. They get the fact that they are members of the ICC, which is something which they can use to their local, uh, to their National Olympic Committee, for example. We haven't even talked about the Olympic Games, but there's another can of worms. Yes. Um, um, again, held up for years and years and years because the BCCI was against it. Um, so solely, really, because the BCCI was against it. So um, it's very hard to see a solution. Um, it needs it needs a strong coalition of forces which would include some of the more powerful uh, full members right. to say we have had enough of this. We recognise that if we compare ourselves with the international rugby board, if we compare ourselves with the global hockey field hockey association. If we compare ourselves with basketball, if we compare ourselves with other global governing bodies of team sports, we can see that they have development plans which are genuinely geared towards a staged expansion of our international tournaments men and women, which aim to give a greater say to the smaller powers, which ensure that uh, the game genuinely does grow and that the growth in the game on the field is reflected in changes in governance, which give increasing influence, if not power, to more and more countries. You mentioned um, Jeff Allardyce was appointed um, as uh, in the administration. What was it about Allardyce administration role that caused you to question his appointment? He has now left, of course, and gone on elsewhere. But yeah, what, yeah. Was it, yeah. what was it that caused you to consider an appointment and uh, not up to par. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I said that. Um, what I don't think I've ever said that. Um, what what, what is appointment caused you concern? No. What caused me concern was that having only just been appointed, he was sent out to defend the indefensible. Oh, I see. That was what. That was. That was he. He had my sympathy. That was my the point about my my joke about having targets painted on your shoes so you can oh. yourself in the foot more accurately. Um, it 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 was it was just that he'd only just started in the job. He'd had to go through the the nonsense of the abandonment of the Super League, the thirteen team Super League. And the next thing that happens is he has to go out and say, but look at all this wonderful stuff we're going to do. Um, why, did he, why did he leave so quickly then? I don't know. 
<laughs> I, genu I genuinely don't know. But honestly, would you stay in that job? Well, it sounds like there's a lot of uh, room in there for uh, head scratching, shall we say. One um, of the points that uh, you were very uh, strong on was associate member budget allocations. Yeah. You have spoken most forthrightly about the budget allocation to associate members. You may not be aware of the exact dollar amount for each associate, but my question is whether or not you are aware of the percent decrease in the allocation of funds, and can you stand by your view that the Gang of Three is responsible for the decrease? Well, the budget allocations are agreed by the executive board. Um, and I am in no doubt that the most influential voices in the executive board are those of the Gang of Three. Um, I, I, I do see figures from time to time, not that I'm necessarily supposed to, but I do see figures from time to time. Um, the, the, the budget allocations are based on a formula. Uh, the formula um, itself is based on on-field performance, but a lot of other criteria as well. One of the fundamental problems, and this actually takes us into some interesting country, I think. One of the fundamental problems is, is that each country, each associate country, I'm sure this doesn't apply to the full members, but each associate country has to supply an annual return of playing numbers, of umpire numbers, of coach numbers, of teams, of grounds, the number of turf pitches, um, a whole a whole range of criteria, which are then which are then ranked. So it's a different sort of ranking from the rankings we were talking about earlier. But each one is ranked. So if you have, let's say you have among the associates um, the, the more, more umpires than um, 26 other countries, then you would be ranked 27th from the bottom on that, on that criteria. And that is then weighted and fed into a formula which determines how many thousand dollars you get for the following year. Those figures are self-reported. They are theoretically verified. How do you verify how many pitches there are in a country? How do you verify how many teams there are in a country? When you realize that the um, the regional offices, the five regional offices of the ICC, so Americas, Europe, Africa, Asia, and East Asia Pacific, when you realize that those were substantially cut down, their funding, their staffing were substantially reduced. Uh, at the same time that the, globe, the high performance program was was decimated, um, and effectively the global strategy from 2000 to 2010 was abandoned. 
one of the consequences of that was that the regional offices were given substantially reduced resources. If you want to check the number of teams, the number of actual competition matches, the number of coaches or umpires in, let us say, Suriname, how do you do that? The only way you can do that is by going to Suriname and looking. Does anybody have the time and the resources to do that? When was their last a check on, for example, Suriname? Let me tell you, Suriname is not a random example. So, and I'm not going to say any more than that. So, okay. but, but I know for a fact that countries, and now I'm not specifically talking about Suriname, I know for a fact that countries have cooked the books, have claimed, have counted, for example, when asked how many pitches there are, have counted every lane on a five turf on a five pitch square as a separate turf pitch. Yeah? yeah. <laughs> so you would inflate you would inflate the number of turf pitches by a factor of five. That kind of thing. Have lying about membership numbers. I know that countries lie about membership numbers, about the number of clubs they have. So um, and there is no check. So the system is fundamentally flawed. In a sense, it matters less because the amounts of money now available to the smaller associate members are so tiny that, that <laughs> the advantages of fraud are relatively small. <clears throat> but still, it's a broken system. My point is, it's a, it's a broken system, and it seems that the ICC doesn't care. Thank you. Let me find out if Jatin has any any questions or comments you'd like to interject at this point. Jatin, are you hearing me? Yes, I am. Give me a minute because okay. I've got some crowd making noise around me. So give me about okay. two minutes and I'll turn back. And Leon is still not. Leon has now disappeared. Okay, so it's just you and me then. Let's go back to the issue of. Um, in, in your um, document, you mentioned ICC, and I'm not sure if this is an error in uh, typing, but it says CRIIIO program. No, it's What's, not a typo. Uh, well, can you tell us what that is? CRIO, I think that's yes. how you pronounce Possibly uh, CRIO. Good. Okay, I that's I imagine that the three eyes are supposed mm -hmm. to represent thumbs. Fine. Fine. That that's ingenious. Yeah. Yes. And and Creo, you can you can find out a lot about it. We find out something about it on the ICC website. Um, Creo is a an entry level program developed by the ICC to help with to help countries introduce new players, particularly kids, to, to cricket. Um, I, I think, I don't think it's as bad as a lot of, it's fashionable to, to, among some of my fellow associate cricket journalists to, to laugh at Creo and talk about it as if it's absolute nonsense. I don't think it is absolute nonsense. But what I said in the article was, to make it truly effective, it needs lots of investment of time, energy, imagination, and, and ultimately money. And, 
if you look at what's happening on the ground in, let's say, the, the 10 or, or a dozen smallest cricketing, European cricketing nations, ICC members, that's probably the area I know most about. Um, they, there are a lot of volunteers there, dedicated people, love cricket, all expats, basically. Um, you look at the way in which, you look at the media presence of the Czech Cricket Association on social media. They are terrific. I was writing weekly summaries of um, cricket across Europe for emerging cricket over the last northern summer called the Euro Wrap. And every week I was able to access, so not only, it's not only true of the Czech Republic, it's true of um, uh, Norway, although their website is a little harder to use. It's true of Austria, it's true of a number of countries. They have great people doing great work, building cricket grounds, rolling out Prio and other programs of their own. Um, but they need help. They need practical help. And above all, they need money because money buys time and time to plan. I've done some of this kind of work myself in, in, in the Netherlands and I know how much time it how much time and thought and energy and commitment it actually involves. So it's all very well to have a great program which is free to everybody and which is available. And so I'm not, as I say, I'm not, I'm not knocking Creo as such. So what I'm saying is, if you really want Creo to work, you have to make it work, and that is not going to happen purely on the basis of the volunteers in country. It involves substantial investment from the centre. 